Hello, everyone. This is Daniel from the Particular Baptist Podcast. This episode was given at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church in Warrington, Virginia, discussing the Arian controversy and Christology in the 4th century. So I hope this is helpful and that this lecture is beneficial in your own study of Christology and church history. I also want to give a shout out uh, to our patron, Stephen, who has graciously come on as our Petty France our Petty France All Access tier. We appreciate your support, Stephen, and we hope that our ministry and the material that we put out is beneficial to you. Please enjoy this episode. Father, thank you for this time we can spend in your word, especially studying your son and the incarnation and, and how your son relates to you. We pray that you would bless our discussion today, that it would be edifying to your people and that we would glorify you in our discussion today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're nearing the end of uh, Volume 1 of Needham's book. And we come to a very important section in church history, the Arian controversy. This is dealing with the person of Jesus Christ, who he was, um, not only in his incarnate state, but primarily as it relates to how uh, he is in the Godhead, the Godhead ad intra, the essence of God. And this is one of the most pivotal points in church history. The church was really laying the foundation for who Christ was. And there already was a foundation there. But the church was refining its language, refining its understanding. Not coming up with new doctrine, but refining its understanding of who God is. And so I want to talk a little bit about um, kind of the hermeneutical framework that was used by the Nicene fathers. And I think this is one of the key takeaways as we go into studying the Council of Nicaea. What was the biblical framework that they were utilizing in understanding these concepts about who Christ was? So they were utilizing what we call good and necessary consequence. This is talking about things that flow from the express teachings of Scripture. We have things that are in Scripture that are laid down explicitly, but then we derive teaching from things that are not explicitly laid down in Scripture, but that flow necessarily from those express teachings. And this is where the church in the Council of Nicaea started using terminology like hypostasis, homoousios, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but terms that are not found in the Scriptures themselves. And the church had to wrestle with how to implement that philosophical language into a biblical framework that was consistent with scripture. But we find this hermeneutical framework not only in the early church, but also in our own confession. If you look at chapter 1, paragraph 6 of our confession, it says the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the holy scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the spirit or traditions of men. So what this paragraph is doing is laying out that there are lesser authorities that can be utilized besides scripture, right? Scripture being the ultimate authority, but there are secondary authorities that can be used, traditions that are consistent with scripture that we can utilize. Uh, Jim Renahan, in talking about this paragraph, he says this, this paragraph articulates the concept of sola scriptura. It must be recognized that the idea of sola scriptura has been badly understood and misrepresented by many. While it certainly is translated into English as scripture alone, this notion must be considered very carefully. It is not and was never intended to be a slogan that omitted reference to, reference to other documents. Rather, it was meant to argue that scripture is the supreme document standing above all sources in the development of Christian faith 
in practice. So this is what the early church utilized in its understanding of God, and it really brought these principles front and center as it had to defend what it believed about the person of Jesus Christ. It had to look at Scripture and say, okay, how do we interpret these difficult doctrines in light of what the Scriptures say? Because Arius was coming along and saying, well, the Scripture says this expressly about the person of Christ. Why can't we believe he's a creature? And the church is saying, no, we can't do that because of these hermeneutical principles that we find in our own confession. And we don't even do this today. We utilize terms like hypostatic union, trinity, incarnation, which are not found in Scripture themselves. Yet we see those doctrines as being pulled from the expressed teachings of Scripture. And the Reformed had to deal with this issue as well. John Owen specifically in dealing with the Socinian groups, which was a heretical group in the 17th century that came about. John Owen dealt with two groups, the Arminians and the Socinians. And the Socinians um, probably gave him some of the most trouble because they fell into this idea that Scripture was the only authority that could be used and that tradition was to be rejected. And we see what happened with Socinians when they fell into that. They denied the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. They started to deny core aspects of how we're saved, all because they were supposedly believing in the scriptures alone. But they rejected other traditions. They rejected the tradition of the church. They rejected the history of the church and fell into heretical doctrine. So we have to be careful that we don't fall into that uh, hermeneutical framework as well. And this is why we study church history, right? So we can learn from the past. We can learn from how these great heroes of the faith utilize scripture to defend these biblical truths, we should be able to learn from those things. But why is the Arian controversy so important for Christians? Because it has to do with the person of Jesus Christ, and that is central to our faith. If we get Christ wrong, our eternal souls are at stake. Okay, we have to, we have to keep that in mind. If we get Christ wrong, our eternal souls are at stake. If we deny the deity of Jesus Christ like Arius did, we will go to hell. We will go to hell. Jesus said, talks about this in John chapter 8, beginning of verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the religious, religious leaders. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now there is some translational liberty given here. When it says I am he, that's meant to make it more readable, but the underlying Greek text is ego I me, that just means I am. So if you translate it literally, Jesus is saying, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So Jesus is saying that if you do not believe that I am God, that I am Yahweh, I am the great I am, then you will perish. This is critical to the gospel. You can see why the early church was so adamant on, um, on defending this doctrine. We have to be very, very careful um, when we're dealing with the person of Jesus Christ. We have to try and speak precisely. We have to try and understand it biblically as best as we can, and we can use the early church to help us do that. And there's a lot of material there in the early church, especially in the fourth century, as we'll um, hopefully get to with some of the Cappadocian fathers who came after Nicaea, who expounded upon the teachings found at Nicaea and trying to unpack all of these teachings that were given there. 
and the struggles that were going on. But this is why it's so important to read, church. It's not important to read broadly. It's important to read in our tradition, right? So we can learn from the past and what the early church and the church throughout history has done. Because a lot of the work, honestly, has been done for us already. We're not having to retread new ground. There's a lot of material there that we can pull from um, to help us in our understanding of these things. I think in the church we tend to, you know, we look on the, the church outside or the, the world outside of us, I should say, and we see all this woke culture around us that rejects history, that rejects like the history of our, our nation, history in general, and tries to implement progressive understandings of the world upon us. I think we can do that in the church too, right? We can have this kind of theological wokeness where we throw away everything that came before us and try to implement new modern understandings of theology into our own mindsets. We have to be careful about that. We have to be very careful about that. It takes hard work to study these things. These things are not easy, but we have to wrestle through them. We have to open history to understand what these things are. So looking at your question sheet, uh, if you look at question number two, how important is theological unity to the church and why should we be united on essentials? We have to be united around these core aspects of the faith, right? There are tertiary things that we can certainly disagree on and love one another with and bear up with one another on. But on these core aspects of the faith, like the person of Jesus Christ, we have to be unified on this as a church. We have to be. This is the will of God, actually. We see in John 17, 21, Jesus in his high priestly prayer. He says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus is praying to the Father that the church would be united, right? That they would be one in Christ. And then jump forward to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning of verse 11. Paul is giving basic instructions here for being unified in the faith and how this affects their understanding of doctrine. It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, or shepherds, teachers, depending on your translation, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So what Paul is saying here is that being united theologically is key to our spiritual growth, right? If we're not united theologically, if one person in the church has a view of Christ over here and another has another view of Christ over here, or whatever the case might be in a core aspect of the faith, we're not going to grow as a church, Right? Paul is giving us these guardrails to help us to stay true to the faith. And we find in Romans 14, Paul is talking about those who are weak, right, on trivial matters and those who are strong. So Paul is, makes very clear in Romans 14 that being weak is not a good place to be. We are to, the stronger to bear with the weak, but it's not a place you want to stay forever. So we are all to mature in the faith. We're all to mature in being unified around these doctrines but we won't waver if we're unified around the faith this is why we have preaching this is why we have teaching this is why we meet on the lord's day so we can learn to be unified in the faith and learn these doctrines as a church 
So what Paul is saying here, and if you go back to verse 13 and 14 of Ephesians 4, we all attain all we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. It's interesting that he points that out, and that has to do with what we're talking about today. The knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. As we're growing in our understanding of Christ and we're growing in our understanding of these doctrines, it will prevent us from falling into false teaching. We won't be blown around by the newest fad on the theological scale that comes out, right? We will be steadfast in our faith because we're unified around Christ as a church. And that's what Nicaea did. Even though from Constantine's perspective, we'll see that he did this for political reasons, economic reasons, whatever the case might be, it wasn't theological reasons necessarily. But the church came together and they codified these doctrines and stood around them so that those uh, so that the church would not waver and then there's a flip side to unity as well even though we're going to be unified around core doctrines we're still going to divide in some sense right there's going to be division with those who are dissenters with those who disagree um, and that is a type of division that is okay that is biblical uh, we don't have unity at the expense of uh, core theological doctrines but we unite around these core doctrines. Um, but we must take a stand against false doctrine. So that will create division. All right, so getting into our topic today around the Council of Nicaea. So who is Arius? Right, he didn't believe they were united. Yep. Yep, Arius, he was a presbyter in Alexandria, Egypt. A lot happened in Alexandria um, in the early church. Um, but really, his teaching would lead would be the events that led to the Council of Nicaea. This is what the council was about. It was around his heretical teaching. Um, so along the lines of what Nancy said, he came onto the scene by promoting a view of the son that he was temporal, that he was not co-eternal with the father. Okay. He, he didn't believe that he was a mere creature. He believed he was some sort of elevated super creature, so to speak. God created the world through him, but he was not God. And he may have even had some aspects of God's being in him, but he was not one with the Father's essence. So he was temporal. So he was created. He had a beginning. Okay. And pretty soon he started butting heads with the Bishop of Alexandria, who was Alexander. And he uh, started to have debates uh, with Arius. As Alexander confessed that Jesus was indeed co-eternal with the Father and saw this as unbiblical doctrine. John Baer, uh, I'd highly recommend John Baer. John Baer is a, he's actually an Eastern Orthodox uh, scholar, but very helpful in de deep diving into Nicene history. Um, but his book, The Nicene Faith, I'll quote from quite a bit, but very helpful. He says this, whatever the initial occasion, very soon there developed the conflict which was to dominate the fourth century, with Alexander affirming the co-eternality and correlativity of the Father and the Son, and Arius maintaining that the Father must in some sense precede the Son. So that means the Son came into being at some point, right? And you can already see how the reaction, you know, like this reaction of horror from Alexander, um, because this had been established Christian thought for a long time at this point. That Christ was co-eternal with the Father. And Arius comes along and says, no, he, he was created. And it's interesting, too, that Arius, in his discussion of uh, the Father and the Son, 
doesn't always refer to God as Father. He seems to only refer to God as Father when he's talking about teachings he doesn't like, not about his own teaching. And that's very interesting because that implies that, because uh, he starts using language of, of being adopted by the Father. He doesn't come from the Father, right? So if he's being adopted by the Father and he's not coming from, in merely coming from the Father, he can't be a Father in a strict real sense, right? So you start to see this language even affecting other aspects of the Trinity. Now the Father is being called into question as he's been traditionally understood. So the Son, in Arius's view, he's subordinate. There's a real ontological distinction from the Father, and this created a wildfire that would split the empire. And this is why Constantine had to get involved, because of the issues that it caused in his empire. Now, what's interesting is that Arius's assertions about the Son were mixed with truth. And this tends to be the case with false teaching, right? You have false teaching that comes in with some erroneous issue from the scriptures, but there's always a little bit of truth in there, right? Just enough to get people to buy into it, but then they can sneak in their deceptive teachings. We're seeing this with uh, Pastor Steve's sermon series in Galatians, right? It seems that the church in Galatia accepted these people. They were part of the body of Christ, right? They weren't people that were coming on the outside that were obviously problematic. They had come into the church and they were beginning to be accepted. So they must have been teaching truth in some sense, enough for them, the church to accept them. But then they started sneaking in their teachings so much so that even people who believed the true gospel were now turning to this false gospel of circumcision and the Mosaic law. So Arius was really no different in that he mixed some truth with his error. The truth that he brought was the unity of God. This is one of the issues that he had. He said, if God is completely one, if God is not to be divided, then how can there be a son? If there's a son, if there's somebody else, and that implies that there's something else, right? So he said that they could not be the same. You cannot uh, preserve the unity of God and have the Father and the Son be co-eternal with one another. So, and we would confess that. We would say, yes, the, God is completely unified. There is no... Uh, divisibleness in God but he took a, a biblical truth and, led, and it led him to a heretical conclusion Mark Knoll says this he says Arius of Alexandria uh, he says when in 318 he communicated his views to his bishop Alexandria he so stressed the unified eternal character of God the father that the son was reduced to a lower status Arius grounded his faith in the absolute transcendence and absolute unity God. So he took a biblical truth that is good and that we confess and came to a false conclusion. And this is the danger of not taking all of scripture into account. As we'll see with some of the scriptures that he used, he tend to cherry pick some of the scriptures and neglect others. Now this is, what I'm going to quote here is a song that Arius actually sang at the, um, at the Council of Nicaea which kind of summarizes his theology about the Son. He said, The uncreated God was made the Son, a beginning of things created. And by adoption, God has made the Son into an advancement of himself. Yet the Son's substance is removed from the, the substance of the Father. The Son is not equal to the Father, nor does he share the same substance. God is the all-wise Father, and the Son is the teacher of his mysteries. 
the members of the Trinity share unequal glories. You can already see problems in there. And if you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith and our confession, you can see specific language that is used to counteract some of these teachings. Like he says, the members of the Holy Trinity share unequal glories. Well, you'll see the Reformed using language that they share equal power in glory. Specific language that is an antithesis to Arianism, to be very, very clear about where they stood. And then you can see Arius talking about the son is son by adoption, not by begetting, not by proceeding from the father, not of the father's essence. So he's trying to be consistent with his own view by saying that Jesus is adopted so that he doesn't have to say that Jesus is the same substance or essence as the father. So he's trying to be very careful with his language here. So some of the passages that Arius like to use, Arius like to use um, Proverbs chapter 8, which um, personifies wisdom, right? So he would utilize passages in there to try to uh, back up his view. Uh, passages like John 14, 28, Luke, 52, Luke 2, 52, passages that have uh, to do with Jesus's human experiences. And so he took that to mean that Jesus was created, was a creature and not God, because how can God experience human uh, experiences and eat and sleep etc you can see he had a very uh, strong misunderstanding of the incarnation but he took verses like that and tried to say look the bible says that jesus is a creature the bible says that jesus is a creature look here's here's my proof text and they this is where the early church started to push back and then this is where the council of nicaea came into play so this leads into question four so the council met to discuss these issues surrounding Arius and Alexander, okay? And there were other things that were dealt with at the Council of Nicaea, not just Arius's teachings. Um, the date of Easter, for instance, was settled there, and there were some church polity issues that were dealt with. But by and large, the Arian controversy was what was dealt with at Nicaea. Um, and then, like I mentioned, Emperor Constantine convened this meeting, the, the Christian emperor, right? But he saw this as problematic for his empire. This could lead to war, civil war, right? Because of the amount of trouble that Arius was causing. And there was another view that was going, Origen, who was an early church father, also had a view of the son that was popular at the time. So you really had two big conflicting views of who Christ was. Um, so they, they had to convene to work all these things out. But Constantine was really just trying to preserve uh, his empire and make sure that there were not, um, you know, there was not civil war. So you can see this, this really, this massive shift, like um, Matt brought up to us last week, this shift away from local churches and toward a state-involved church. And you can see that those lines are being blurred between church and state already, even more so. And now the emperor is getting directly involved in church matters um, for his own uh, self, uh, selfish gain, essentially. Now, there is some indication that the Arians would come around to see their error, that they would repent to some extent. But there was a term that they did not like that was introduced at the Council of Nicaea. That is the term homoousios. It's a Greek word. Homo means same, and ousios means essence or substance. So they used this term, this philosophical term, essentially, to describe how Christ uh, related to the Father. Christ was of the same substance 
of the Father. And that would mean that necessarily that he would be co-eternal, co-equal. He would share all the same power and glory as the Father if he was of the same substance. But this didn't sit well with many involved in the debate. They were struggling with this language because the language was not found directly in Scripture. And remember I talked about the hermeneutical framework that was given, right? They were starting to, they were seeing these concepts as being found in Scripture, and they were trying to work out how to incorporate and explain these concepts in a way that people could understand, but without compromising the biblical uh, witness. So they applied some of these terminologies, homoousios, that's not found in Scripture, yet it communicates the principles that are found in Scripture, that Jesus is God. He must be the same essence as the Father. So this firmly contradicted Arius' assertion since he believed that Jesus was separate from the Father. He was created. Okay, But if he's, if he's of the same substance, then he must have the same um, substantial attributes as the Father. And he would not be subordinate to the Father, as Arius also indicated. And later on, the Athanasian Creed, which codified Nicene theology... Uh, said this, nothing in this trinity is before or after, nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal co and co-equal with each other. So again, they're using very specific language to counteract Arius's teachings about the Son, being very precise and very clear on what they mean by that. And then as a result of the council, Arius and his followers were exiled. They were exiled. Um, but eventually they would be allowed to return, at least Arius was. And you start to see kind of this, this state, again, the state being involved in the church, and kicking people out of their homes because they didn't believe in a certain theological uh, truth. As we'll see later, one of the emperors who would become an Arian emperor started to do something similar to the Orthodox, right? Whoever's in power and whoever has a certain theological view will win the day when you mix uh, church and state like this. But even with Arius gone, his, his presence was still very much felt and his teaching problematic, and it would continue on through the 4th century where they had to deal with Arius' teaching and trying to counteract it and explain and refine language around um, the sun. Now, kind of as a side note, and, and this kind of times perfectly with the season, um, but you know, we're all aware of St. Nicholas, right? We have St. Nicholas. This is where, you know, allegedly St. Nick of, uh, you know, Santa Claus comes from. But he has, the original St. Nick has some relation to the Council of Nicaea. Um, so he came much later, or actually writings about him came much later. We don't, we know almost nothing about him until uh, the 6th century. So that's about 300 years after Nicaea. Um, Kevin DeYoung has a really good article on this on together uh, TGC together for the gospel I wouldn't recommend reading anything else by together for the gospel but this was helpful um, he says uh, Nicholas was also hailed as a defender of orthodoxy later sources claim he was in attendance at the council of Nicaea according to tradition he was a staunch opponent of Arianism writing five centuries after his death one biographer said thanks to the teaching of Saint Nicholas the metropolis of Myria alone was untouched by the filth of the Arian heresy which it firmly rejected as a death-dealing poison. Stories of his courage abound, one claiming that Nicholas traveled to Nicaea and upon arrival promptly slapped Arius in the face. 
As the story goes, the rest of the council was shocked and appalled so much so that they were going to remove Nicholas from his, um, his bishop, bishopric. I can't, I don't know if that's right. But basically remove him as a bishop until Jesus and Mary appeared to defend him. So there's definitely some embezzling going on here with the, the language. According to the same legend, uh, this uh, apparition changed the minds of delegates who quickly recanted their outrage. So he became a legend in the church, right? He became a legend in the church. Um, and that you see this kind of language that's being used in, um, in, throughout church history. You know, whoever is in favor of a certain emperor or a certain person, they tend to sometimes, you know, exaggerate a little bit in some of their views to make this person that they like look good. Um, so again, this is why reading broadly is helpful. Reading from multiple sources is helpful to see what the truth is. Um, but this is really essentially the, the true story of St. Nicholas, that he probably was at Nicaea and was actually a proponent of orthodoxy and has been hijacked by our, our culture, essentially. Um, to turn into this uh, fantasy character. All right, so question five. A any questions or comments on the first four questions so far? I know I'm throwing a lot out there. I have a lot to cover today. Yes? I, I always thought there was some type of subordination in Godhead, like not now, but would you say there's a functional subordination? Like, because the Father kind of is the boss, you know, even though Jesus could be boss, he chooses to submit to the Father and then all the Spirit seems to submit to Oh, he's also not my same essence. Um, so, no, we would reject functional subordination. And there have been those in, in the reform world who, even uh, during the time of our confession, who have used language that seemed to imply that. Um, we would say no, because um, if Jesus is subordinate to the Father in any way, that implies that he has a separate will. Um, so we're going to, yeah, and I'm going to talk about that actually a little bit in this next question about the unity of God. Um, so we have to be careful when we're talking about subordination um, of the Son because we can creep into these areas of Arianism if we're not careful. Yeah, Arius was really kind of the, the logical conclusion of subordinationism because he took it, you know, he's ontologically separate and actually distinct and, and subordinate. Um, but if Jesus shares the same substance as the Father and is equal in power and glory, then we can't say that he has any type of submission to his Father in that way. The only place he did submit is as the Son uh, in flesh. That's it. Not in, his, not in his divine state, but only in his uh, incarnate state. Only according to his human nature. Now, hopefully that helps a little bit. Yeah, that helps. Okay. All right, so what is Trinitarian Orthodoxy? I'm going to try and give a 30,000 foot uh, kind of understanding of the Trinity. So the, the doctrine of the Trinity really is core to our faith, right? This is not something that is tertiary, something that is, um, you know, we can kind of disagree on and, and be okay about. This is a core aspect of what we believe. Um, I would encourage you to read Francis Turretin in his Institutes of Eclectic Theology. Um, he has some really good uh, things on the Trinity, but in his 24th question, he says the second it, that's referring to the doctrine of the Trinity, contains the primary object of faith and worship, the confession of which our baptism necessarily includes. For it is not sufficient to know that God is, as to existence or what he is, as to his attributes, but we must know also know who he is, as to the persons 
he presents himself known by us in this world. And what Turretin is saying here is that worship is a key element as to why we need to know the Trinity. We got to know who to worship, right? We could be worshiping an idol for all we know if we don't get God right, right? So it's absolutely crucial. And then the aspects of it relating to the Son as well that we talked about, right? If you don't believe that Jesus is God, then you can't have a complete gospel. Turretin goes on, he says, The article of the Trinity is not only theoretical but also practical because it contributes to the gratitude and worship of God. Thus we devote our faith and service to the triune God who has revealed himself to us. It also contributes to consolation so that we may know that Christ has truly redeemed us and that our salvation is securely positioned. We find this type of language in our own confession, chapter 2, paragraph 3. It says that the doctrine of the Trinity is where we find our comfortable dependence upon God, right? So it's absolutely foundational to what we believe. All right, so I'm going to go through um, these different aspects of the Trinity at a very high level. But the basis of the Trinity is that we believe in one God. We're monotheists, right? We're monotheists. We believe in that there's only one God. We believe that idolatry is wicked and foolish. Isaiah 44, verse 9, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Isaiah 45, 5-7, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So if someone or something rises up to say that they can do these things that only God can do, they're blaspheming. There is no other God. There's only one God. Number two, this God is simple. Now, this doesn't mean that God is stupid or has a, a low IQ, right? This means that God is not composed of parts. He's not complex. He's not made up of other things. There aren't things that make up God. Because a part is something that is not identical to the whole. For instance, um, if you look at a car, a car battery is not itself the car. You can pull the car battery out of the car and it's still a car battery, right? It isn't the car itself. But with God, all that is in God, we would say, is God. There's nothing that is in God that is not God that you can pull out and say, well, this thing is still that thing even though it's making up God. And there are biblical reasons for this. God is existing completely of himself. He's completely independent of his creation and anything outside of himself. He's not dependent on anything outside of himself. That's really where this doctrine comes from. We find this very clearly in our confession. Chapter 2, paragraph 1. It says, The Lord our God is but one, one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself. That's the Asse language. God is of himself. God is not dependent. God is self-existent. He's infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions. So he uses very specific language that says that God does not have any parts. God is a most pure spirit. Romans 11.36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So if all things are from God, there's nothing outside of God 
that could make him to be anything that he is or that he needs to pull from in order to act, right? He just, he just is. Everything that isn't God is God. So nothing can come before him because all things come through him. Because if something comes before him, that implies that there's someone before God, right? And God is now subordinate to whatever that higher power is. All things come from God. Since existence, as it relates to creatures, is what we consider a thing, God cannot be subject to it, but must be existence itself. He stands above all things, and they derive their existence from him alone. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. That's Acts 17, 28, where Paul is dealing with the, uh, the philosophers on Mars Hill, using their own philosophy against them and turning it on its head. So our existence and our movement are all from God immediately. Therefore, nothing can be above God. All things come from him. Then we have Exodus 3.14, where Moses is at the burning bush and God reveals his covenant name to him. Right? He says that he is the I am, and it is to tell the people of Israel that I am has sent you. Right? He is the self-existent one. He depends upon no one. He is not becoming. He is not waning. He is perfect. Richard Mueller in his Dictionary of Latin Greek Theological Terms, second edition, highly recommend you get this work. It's a very helpful reference, not a very big book, um, but has a lot of Latin and Greek words that were used during the uh, Reformation period that can be helpful. He says, Simplicity is the guarantee of the absolute ultimacy and perfection of God, so much so that it frequently appears in scholastic systems as the first divine attribute on which a right understanding of all of the divine attributes depends so the reform saw this doctrine is absolutely crucial this was not a secondary doctrine that they just kind of put over here to get to when they got to it this was uh, crucial to their understanding of god uh, william ames who was an english reformer and long before our confession came along he said this about god's independence in his marrow of theology he said now because the essence of god is such hence it follows first that god is one and only one Secondly, that God is of himself, that is, neither from another, nor of another, nor by another, nor for another. So he's kind of playing off Romans 11.36 there. And what the reform were doing was they were putting themselves squarely into the early church. We see this even being discussed before Nicaea, probably about 100 years or so. Um, Irenaeus, who was a second, third, search, third century church father, he said this, Men are compounded by nature and consists of a body and a soul. But God is not as men are. He is a simple, uncompounded being without diverse members, altogether like and equal to himself, since he is holy understanding, holy spirit, holy thought, holy intelligence, holy reason, holy hearing, holy seeing, holy light, and the whole source of all that is good. So this is not some Roman Catholic doctrine. This comes long before uh, the Roman Catholics came on the scene. Even though Rome does confess this doctrine um, actually uh, in an orthodox way but we see this as being confessed throughout the early church all right number three god is immutable and this is tied very closely to god's simplicity and this is another basic christian doctrine about god god does not change he has, since he has no dependencies, he cannot be fettered, cannot be caused to be something that he is not. 
and he is perfect and infinite. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. This is the Tetragrammaton, the I am, Jehovah, Yahweh, however you translate that. It all means the same thing. It's referring to God's covenant name, the self-existent one that does not change. And what God is doing in Malachi 3.6 is he's grounding his unchangeableness in his very nature. And so he's going to keep his promises to Israel. He's not going to wipe them out because he doesn't change. He's going to remember his covenant and uh, preserve them even in their wickedness. Psalm 102, 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but you will change them like a robe. And they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. So you see this creator-creature distinction being brought out here, right? The creator doesn't change. The creator causes things to change that are not God, right? The creator moves his creation to change. And then our hope is grounded in God's immutability. I think you can see this very clearly in Hebrews chapter 6, where God swears by himself, and it says that he has nobody greater to swear by. If there's nobody greater to swear by, God must be the supreme being. He's not dependent upon anything, right? If he is the, if he is the one who must be sworn by. And so that's why we can be grounded in the promises of God is because our God is immutable and he does not change. The gospel won't change one day to the next. Our promise of righteousness and salvation won't change from one day to the next because God does not change. We have absolute certainty that his promises will come to pass. And then finally, this God exists as three persons. This is the classic Trinitarian formula. God is one being who exists as three persons. Okay, we've already established that God is simple. He's not composed of parts. So there, God does not have persons over here, and then his essence is over here, and they're somehow squashed together to make God. God just is his persons, right? That is the essence of God. God is existing as three persons. We would call this God's modes of existence. And this is not to be confused with Sibelianism. God is not manifesting himself as different persons at different times. These are co-eternal, co-equal persons. And this allows us to preserve the unity of God and his immutability while confessing that there are real distinctions between the persons of the Trinity. And these distinctions are through what we call relations of origin. We see the Father begetting the son the son is begotten of the father and the spirit is proceeding from the father and the son if you look at the westminster longer catechism it defines this for us question nine how many persons are there in the godhead there be three persons in the godhead the father the son and the holy ghost and these three are one true eternal god the same in substance equal in power and glory although distinguished by their personal properties question 10 what are the personal properties of the three persons in the godhead it is pop proper to the Father to beget the Son, and to the Son to be begotten of the Father, and to the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity. So that's how they are distinguished from one another, by their relations to one another. Yet there's no division in the Godhead. There's no division in the Godhead. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son, etc. This is just the essence of God existing as three co-eternal, co-equal persons. 
All right, any questions or comments? I know I'm, I'm throwing a lot out there. We could spend weeks just talking about the Trinity. Yes, Ben. Yeah, unfortunately, there are those who say there's functional and sometimes ontological submission within the Godhead in, in Christ's deity, and that's where we would have issues. But yes, according to his human nature, he submitted to the Father. Yeah, and then you brought up a good point there. Jesus has a distinct will from the Father, right? His will doesn't contradict the will of the Father because um, Christ is perfect. He's going to obey his Father perfectly, but he has a distinct will, distinct desires, in a sense, from God, a human will in that sense, not in his divine nature. His divine nature, his divine will is unified with the Father's, but his human will um, acts independently. Quickly is, yeah. being like human, like he is, his will is the Father's will, that's his will. Yes. Is the Father's will. So it's the same, but he also has his own will, which yes. is the Father's. Yeah, yeah, his human will is distinct from the Father's will. It acts in accordance with what his Father wants. Um, but it is really distinct from the Father's in, in his human nature. I, yep. I sort of think this similarly in a little human concept or perception is that sometimes in our own actions we think, I really don't want to do this, but I have to. I don't know if anybody understands what I'm saying. Are you talking about in relation to Christ's it, struggle? Yes. Right. the anger and the pain and he's going to suffer just as we are and in a sense I really don't want to do this but I have to do this that is my father's will yeah it, Jesus was not desiring to disobey his father he's just speaking in agony knowing what's going to happen yeah suffering. yes and yep. I think of the missionaries overseas that stand up there and shoot me I won't deny God but do they really want to get shot Yes. Yeah, Jesus was fully, even in that moment, he was fully submissive to the will of the Father. Yeah, even in his struggle with that pain that he knew he was going to go through. Yep. I like that it shows that because um, that was necessary. Yeah. Yep. Jesus, in a sense, proved himself according to his humanity. He obeyed the Father in one righteousness for his people by doing that. Yep. 
But I just want to be clear that even in that, Jesus was not waning in his obedience. He wasn't sitting over here like, oh, I really, really want to disobey my father. He, he was going to go to the cross, um, but it's just he's struggling with that agony that he has to go through. Um, but pursuing that obedience regardless. Yeah. All right, any other questions or comments? Yeah, Andrew. Uh, just going back to what you said in the beginning about the importance of being united on the essentials of the faith. Mm -hmm. We as Baptists more than anyone understand that in the New Covenant era, one of the distinctives that all shall know him from the least yes. to the greatest, everyone. And you cannot, you cannot know him if you do not know him properly as a holy God and holy man. Yes. Right? Since we're striving for that pure new covenant community that's promised to us, right, where everybody in the visible church, to our best of our ability, is regenerate, then we have to be united in those things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it, I think we tend to miss that in our in our modern day, right? The doctrine of God is just kind of, yeah, you know, we'll we'll partner with these people. They might have very bad issues with the doctrine of God that could borderline heretical or be heretical, but you know. As long as we're united on the culture, it doesn't matter, right? We, we can't, we, we have to get our priorities straight here. When we're talking about what we believe as Christians in the gospel, our doctrine of God is absolutely crucial to uh, the faith. All those other things are secondary, right? Everything flows from that. All right, I don't think we're going to be able to finish our uh, questions here. So I think I'll close with this. Um, we'll stop at question five. Um, but I think I hit all the things I wanted to leave you with. I wanted to leave you with the hermeneutical framework that the early church used, talking in relation to Nicaea and Arius, etc., and then talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. I think that gets to the meat of what we were talking about with Nicaea. So let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time where we discuss your church, Lord, and how you preserved your church even in the midst of uh, doctrinal issues, Father. And pray, Lord, that we as a church would be united around these core issues of the faith, that we would seek to understand them and learn them so that we may glorify you more, Father, in our understanding of you, and that we may teach others these things as well, and that we would not waver on what the scriptures teach about you. Help us to stay the course, Father. And I pray that our understanding of you in this lesson today would help us in our worship, that we would praise you, Father, for your unchanging nature, for who you are, that you do keep your promises to us, and that we would praise your name and give doxology for that, uh, for that blessing, Father. We pray that you would bless our worship and be with Pastor Steve as he brings us the word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.